It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. More than 8 million Americans have fallen into poverty since June, and tens of millions more are barely holding on. Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID survival plan is crucial, but Republicans in Congress say we can't afford it. Well, I've got news for them. Since the start of the pandemic, America's 660 billionaires have become $1.1 trillion richer, which means they alone could finance most of Biden's plan just with the increase in their wealth over the last 10 months. An emergency wealth tax that used their $1.1 trillion windfall to pay for the COVID survival plan would put these billionaires back to where they were 10 months ago, still very comfortable while helping the rest of America survive. This is the sort of trickle-down economics that could actually work. Kevin Hassett, who served in the Trump administration as a senior advisor to the president, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and who is currently a senior advisor to National Review's Capital Managers, uh, joins me now. His article... National Review, Biden's COVID relief bill, a glass not full. But Kevin, there you hear Robert Reich and his take on how we do this. I mean, I played it for the purposes of, you know, just what is on the table and in the glass. Yeah, I, I mean, if you think about it, what he was basically saying is that the government should just take the wealth of those rich guys. And you know, basically, once the Democrats can just take the wealth of people, what's to stop them from taking your wealth and my wealth? What little there is for me, at least, you know, I, I mean, it, it's really, uh, you know, a, a barrier that's not been broken before in the U.S. Uh, to just seize people's wealth like that. Like, even if they're going to put a highway through, they pay you for the house. Right. Uh, and so this is this is really quite revolutionary what Reich is advocating. You know, it also points to an ideological shift, and I want to get more into the economics of it with you, but the ideology and economics come together. Let's call it the Keynesian side of things versus the free market side. Uh, you know, I, I happen to have had a conversation with a billionaire uh, throughout this, a good friend, but the other day about that statement Reich made. And this billionaire had to lay off a thousand people during COVID but managed to bring back almost all of them by sticking it out, by cutting corners across his entire operation. And that was a cost to him. He's profitable again in the sense of making money, or at least working towards the profit side, because he maintained other people who are part of this economy, not just the billionaire. Do they not understand, or is it just really about selling that division? Yeah, I think it's like a political device that's really gone back to Marx in the 19th century. You know, the basic idea is that for sure the guy who owns the factory is richer maybe than the guy who sweeps the floor at the factory. But the guy who sweeps the floor at the factory is much better off, you know, than he would have been if there was no factory, right? And, and so if you have uh, you know, investments and businesses and stuff, those create jobs. And those jobs are opportunity for folks like all across the civilization and the distribution of uh, skill. And, and, and so, so this idea that capital is at war with labor is exactly backwards. You might recall when I was in the White House, I was constantly talking about how blue collar wages would go up if we passed the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. 
And so what happened after we passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act? You remember, blue-collar wages went up a lot, like more than they had since World War II. And so this idea that capital and labor are at war with one another is very useful politically for Democrats, but it's really harmful to blue-collar folks. Because if you don't have a business, if you don't have a factory, if you don't have a factory that wants to buy more machines, then workers aren't going to become more productive and see higher wages, and maybe you won't even have jobs. This is what concerns me, among many things that do with the economic approach from this administration. And let's focus on your piece in National Review. Uh, you know, when, when we look at the glass, so to speak, and what's being debated now in Washington, D.C., uh, this just doesn't add up economically. Now, you're the economist here in the conversation. I'm just the talk show host. But from an economics point of view, it seems to be an imbalanced economic approach to helping Americans while at the same time finding some of the other avenues that are necessary to allow the economy to function for the person sleeping the floor, uh, sweeping the floor rather, hopefully not sleeping on the floor, and the person who owns the factory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and what's going on really is that, you know, there are a lot of states like New York that have seen, you know, massive shutdowns the whole time. They've made no effort to think about like what parts of the economy can open safely while other parts are protected more like nursing homes. And they've seen massive, massive drops in GDP. So I think New York was just about the largest in the country last year. And then there are other places like Nebraska that have, you know, in consultation with the medical professionals have figured out, you know, how they could best function and sort of try to keep the economy afloat while protecting themselves as best they can from COVID. And, and, and so what's going on now is that the places that have done a pretty good job of balancing all of the terrible competing risks of last year uh, are being asked to bail out the, the states that just shut down and destroyed their economies. Yeah, another uh, point on this is what came out of the Congressional Budget Office yesterday. Uh, a prediction that the U.S. economy will bounce back to its pre-pandemic size by the middle of the year without any emergency stimulus. And, you know, this is more of an optimistic forecast. But the other components, some of which you talk about, I call relative economies. In one state, it's different than another. The COVID picture is different in one than the other. And those parts of the economy are being prohibited by political decisions in some cases, such as in New York, New Jersey, and these primarily blue states. So to the CBO's point about the economy uh, and what this could look like a few months from now, what do you say? Yeah, I think the CBO forecast just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, But I kind of respect where it comes from, uh, even though it's just it's a very, very goofy forecast. Where it comes from is the CBO's job is to sort of protect the taxpayer and to sort of, you know, give numbers analysis that guides uh, politicians when they do things like think about whether they can afford a one point nine trillion dollars stimulus. And the fact is that, you know, we're going to add probably in the fullness of time, maybe three trillion dollars to the national debt this year if we have that stimulus. And you know, goodness knows next year's an election year, so probably they're not gonna let this stuff expire. So that's another three trillion. And and you know, under the CBO's own forecast, we're adding twelve trillion. That's like, you know, more than half of GDP to the national debt over the next ten years. 
those are just, you know, like Argentine default level numbers. And so I think what the CBO maybe was thinking when they put out this crazy forecast, which is way too high and has way too little inflation and so on, is they're thinking, well, if we make it look like the economy's great, then maybe they won't, you know, dig the hole so much deeper as they're planning to do. You know, if you add an infrastructure bill to the stimulus bill, gosh knows how high the debt could get this year. See, and what would that lead to you, in your opinion, in the near term? You know, long-term debt is a problem, right. overspending. You know, government revenue, government gets in plenty of tax revenue. The spending is the problem. Yeah, what's going to happen is prices are going to go up because basically what's happening is we're issuing so much debt that nobody around the world wants to buy it. You know, the U.S., we don't buy our own debt very much. We depend on the kindness of strangers and the strangers are going to just basically say, forget about it. You're just, you know, selling too much debt. And so then the fed is going to come in and buy, you know, most of the debt would be my guess. And when that happens, it's called monetizing the debt. And that's how you get inflation, like really high inflation. My guess is that, you know, the price of gasoline will be $4 by the end of the year. Inflation rate this year is going to go, you know, way, way, way above the fed target, probably around three at least, and then go up from there. And so, so, you know, we look right now, you know, kind of like uh, old fashioned banana Republic that was very close to default because we're uh, issuing lots of debt and having the central bank buy it. And that's a recipe for a, you know, a collapse of the currency inflation and eventually higher interest rates. And, you know, you've done this to me so many times. You get ahead of my next question with a smart response (laughs) because my next question was about value and also to points that you make in your article. uh, What happens if the money that goes out, this large amount of borrowing goes out and is not spent the way they project or predict it will be spent? What if people hoard uh, in some cases? uh, What does that do? Well, I actually think in, in this case, uh, and uh, I'll go back to the National Review article, which you know the listeners can find at National Review, that what we're basically saying is that this isn't really about stimulus in the Keynesian sense. It's about relief. It's kind of like the whole country was hit by a hurricane. You know, and if Florida gets hit by a hurricane, it's not a partisan issue that we go down there. We offer relief, you know, give loans to small businesses to sort of clean up the mess from the hurricane and so on. And I think that the problem is that this hurricane that's hit our country is so humongous that we really do need more relief. But the problem is that the Democrats have politicized it quite a bit. At least, you know, I said it's a glass knot pool. I didn't want to say half because I'm not exactly sure even half is right. Uh, but the fact is there's some good stuff in, in Biden's plan, but he also has a $15 minimum wage, you know, and the massive bailout to states, even though their revenue last year was about flat. And so he's putting a lot of partisan stuff to the bill, which makes it like a political thing, not a stimulus and not relief. And, and the point of my National Review article is let's just fess up to the fact that we've had a disaster and that we probably need to provide more relief to the people who need it. But then let's focus on getting the relief targeted and the right size. Again, with the getting ahead of my next question, it's almost as if we've done this before. Uh, tar- I, I, I've asked that question and talked about it quite a bit. It targeted relief. How do you think we can find, Kevin, those areas? I mean, I know it's easy to find some of the big, obvious ones and the, what we see in the headlines, but how do we target the relief effectively? And fair to say, I think it's a big challenge because of other decisions that can be made, but also hard to identify every aspect of who needs relief or every sector, rather, that needs relief. Yeah, well, 
I think that the two things that jump out at you are that America's small businesses have been absolutely hammered, most of them. They're like, there are a few that have done okay. But to put it in perspective, in um, travel and leisure relative to last January, 67% of small businesses are still closed. 67%, right? I mean, that's just amazing that, that they're closed and not bankrupt. And, and so we need to, you know, basically give them bridge loans until hopefully this summer when we're all vaccinated. And then the other thing you see in the employment data is that rich people, basically employment went up last year and income was fine. Uh, and so, that, like, I'm not a class worker kind of guy, as you know. But if you look at the data, you could see that the folks who are unemployed because those small businesses are closed are relatively low income people. So I think that, you know, as President Trump said on the way out, bigger checks for individuals, but targeted for those that are um, unemployed uh, and maybe at the bottom of the income distribution would make sense because they were really disproportionately hit both by disease and by the economic impact of the disease. And so, so those are the two things that I think should be emphasized. And I think everything else is just a sideshow and, you know, political gamesmanship and so on. And, and it, it's the exact opposite of what President Biden promised he would do when he took office. Yeah, and, you know, at the state level, and as the economist here again in the conversation, how do you think states can better manage their response? And is there even a level of not acceptable, but expected in the reality of there's going to be some loss in certain sectors of a state's economy? I mean, it's tragic. You talk about small businesses that didn't survive, but others. Uh, retail, you know, there were some states in some areas of the country where retail, there was just too much retail, for lack of a better way of putting it. And we've seen some of those retail chains contract. Yeah, I think that there's going to be a, a big long run change uh, with, uh, you know, us being willing to do more remotely and that being bad for people who, you know, made their money hosting meetings and so on. But the big thing that you see variation across the states is that they're being um, some of them are being super efficient like west virginia and the dakotas at getting the vaccines into people and some of them are being like absurdly terrible like washington dc where uh you know as of yesterday they had received 150 something thousand vaccines but they had only put about 81,000 of them into people's arms and and so in you know D.C., the vaccine is proceeding forward, you know, at a, at a crawl uh, pace, whereas in other places, they're basically getting it and putting it in. And so what's going to happen is that West Virginia and North Dakota are going to be able to open up uh, and D.C. is going to still like if you go downtown in D.C., you know, there's there's the only thing you see in shop windows is plywood. Right. And, and it's going to stay that way for a good long time, given how terrible the mayor's been at getting vaccines out. Yeah, I, I just had to pause for a moment myself on that plywood because I see it in the streets of New York and, you know, we see it in D.C., all over this country. And there's an effect on the society when we're shuttered, closed down. And that's contrary to who we are as a country. Business owners, I talk to many of them and I know as you do. And, and they can find a way to work. They can find a way to innovate, to keep their businesses and their livelihoods and their employees, for that matter, going. And that, I think, is one of the greatest failures by our elected officials to not allow businesses to make better decisions or at least understand how to make the right decision for their their environment. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And now... Uh... 
they're going to hit with be hit with heavy regulation and higher taxes and uh, I mean I mean small business sentiment it's it's no mystery but you know and it might be related in part to the dispute but small business sentiment you know basically kind of skated through last year without going completely in the tank uh, but right after the election it started to head deeply deeply south and I think that you know after COVID. If you're looking ahead to a world where regulations are expanding as quickly as they did under President Obama, where taxes are being hiked, you know, uh, President Biden and his campaign platform proposed basically having small business income. So if you run a little, you know, shoe shop, then your income uh, from the shop has to pay both sides of the payroll tax, you know, north of 12 percent on top of your income tax. You know, it's the biggest tax increase on small businesses ever. So all that kind of stuff is sort of lurking on the other side of this COVID pandemic recession. And you can really, really see it in the sentiment data. And so I think that what's going to happen is that the Democrats are going to swing from the fences. They're going to try to do all all that stuff. And, you know, we're going to just collapse as an economy. Or, you know, the moderates like Joe Manchin are going to, you know, hold the stuff up and and keep them from doing it because it's so economically irrational. But I really don't know which is going to happen right now. And I'm very worried about it. Yeah, as we should be, you know, combined effects. Uh, and thanks for sticking around for some extra minutes here. You know, I enjoy oh, these sure. conversations, talk. Yeah. but but they're needed. Combined effects of decisions and your point about regulations and what we see coming out of uh, the White House now. But also, you know, when you take out sectors of the economy for ideology, the Keystone Pipeline, I urge people to look at a map of pipelines around this country and just do a search engine for how pipelines are constructed and their security and failure rates, et cetera, to learn a little bit about it. But that when you combine the effects of other decisions and the economy and the pandemic related, let's call it pandemic related decisions, you know, what does that look like to you? Yeah. And, and, well, first it's a, it's a big negative, but, but the thing is that this, sort of anti-pipeline stuff is very, very strange. You know, I understand that there are people who care a lot about climate change. We could talk about that another day. But for the most part, you know, greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. have gone way, way down because people have substituted cheap natural gas for coal. And the cheap natural gas is something that you can get to a place where they used to generate electricity with coal if you build a pipeline. And so uh, if you don't build pipelines, then for the most part, the biggest uh, impact is you continue to generate power with coal. And coal has, you know, puts out a lot more uh, greenhouse gases. But the other thing is that there are lots of unintended consequences. One that I worked out at the White House is that, and you've noticed, like, you guys got lots of snow up in New England, uh, you know, and heading up that way. Uh, there, there was a polar vortex a few winters ago. And um, I discovered at that point, because it, it became an economic emergency that rose to the attention of the White House, that New England gets its natural gas basically from the Russians, and that they can't get their natural gas from U.S. providers because there's no pipeline. And, and so what happens is that Ru- Russian tankers come into Boston and supply all the natural gas to New England. And so when there was a polar vortex, the Russians basically held up New England for really, really high prices for their own, for their natural gas, charging them. It was something like more than half a billion dollars more than the market price because they sort of had a monopoly on it because they're the only ones that you know had access to the spigot. Uh, but that's what happens when you don't think rationally about energy policy and, and this sort of just knee-jerk banning of, of pipelines is putting you know thousands of people out of work. But it's also 
you know, probably having the wrong effect on carbon emissions and exposing us to extortion from, you know, outside bodies that can, you know, provide the gas to us in ships rather than in pipelines. You know, I, I have to say this. You win radio today. You have just made the most the most outstanding example of why we need to be energy efficient, given all of the left's attacks and including the whole Russia diatribe or whatever the narrative that they've pushed for four years. What you just said about energy and why we need to be energy and economically independent, because you just made New England, Ukraine, when Russia turns off the spigot. Yeah, it's it's a real thing. It's a real thing. There's a, there's a second aspect to it. We're going deep in the weeds, but that's why people listen to your show. I know that that um, because of something called the Jones Act, which means that if a, a ship operates in U.S. waters going port to port, that it has to be made in the U.S. Uh, well, there's no manufacturer in the U.S. that makes natural gas ships, liquid natural gas ships. And so you can't take U.S. natural gas from port to port in the U.S. because of the Jones Act. And so the only people who can deliver natural gas to U.S. ports are foreign shippers. <laughs> it's just so I, Can we do you know, this and, once and a week? <laughs> it brings me to sanity or insanity, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The, the crazy thing about that one is we really worked hard to change it and just couldn't. It was just there was too much resistance. Boy, I'm going to just take a break now after that one. Just <laughs> leave it at that. Well, you, can... you've. <laughs> Go make a snow angel or something, right? I mean, there's lots of snow up there. So. Uh, we'll do that. Kevin has <laughs> my friend. Uh, you know, sometimes you just have to look at this thing. But I really appreciate it. We, we put a lot of meat on the bone for the listeners. And I, and I thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Always really glad to be here. All right. Looking forward to our next conversation. We'll take a break on that. Just think about it if you're in New England right now. Uh, in the middle of that uh, snowstorm that's ongoing. I want to hear your response to that last part of my interview with Kevin Hassett and uh, what you think. Again, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and a senior advisor to National Review's Capital Matters. That's a new initiative focused on financial and economic coverage. We'll be hearing a lot from Kevin in the on this show, certainly. Thank you. 866-95-PATRIOT. You can join me live on The David Webb Show, Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east, on Sirius XM Patriot 125.